Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but, but actually started, started one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we're speaking with Shell Olmert, CEO and co-founder of PlayBuzz, a storytelling platform that is enabling and um, is powering both publishers as well as many brands to create editorial and commercial content that is more engaging and more fun. I hope I got that right. I met Shoal when I was at Oberon Media back in 05. Shoal just left to go to Nickelodeon um, and MTV. Um, Shoal has been involved with numerous other startups, including Netaline, GameGround, Conduit, and Sunday Sky. Shoal is a friend of mine, and so it's a pleasure to have you on, um, I think, our 10th episode now of the Plugged In podcast. Thank you. Um, so with that, you know, just why don't you tell us a little bit more of uh, background about yourself, and then we'll get into the questions. I'm, uh, I was born and raised in Jerusalem, which is uh, something that I'm very proud of. I always feel like it's the best way to define me, is that I'm from Jerusalem, even though I, uh, I no longer live there for the past uh, couple of decades. I spent the majority of my adult life in New York. Uh, I went to grad school at NYU and got a master's in uh, interactive telecommunications, had some uh, financial background, worked for an investment company before, uh, and then um, moved into the world of startups and specifically of uh, gaming. I was always intrigued by games. I was a big gamer myself as a kid, as, an, uh, as a young adult. And I always knew that uh, gaming is where people's passion is. Uh, people are really engaged, are really emotionally involved, are really into the experience. And I guess that uh, PlayBuzz, as well as other things I did earlier in my career, is really an attempt to bring the same excitement and emotional involvement and engagement of a person into the world of content. Because I feel like in today's world, um, people are really hooked on games. You know, everybody's playing games. But when they come to read content, they no longer really read, right? I mean, they're too distracted. <laughs> the content is too long. Yeah. So you like you click on a link that you that somebody sent you on Facebook or WhatsApp, and you you just see the headline. You scroll a little bit. You look at the pictures. You don't really read the full thing. And my mission at PlayBuzz was to help create content that people actually truly engage with. Got it. And and that's uh, you've done a good job at that. And we'll get into Thank that you. later in the episode. Um, so what was your first job? Um, let's go back a bit from where you started. You know, first job when you finished, uh, I, I mean, you did the army, then you did yeah. university. So when you left university, your first job out there, and did anything stick with you that um, that you still use today? Any, you know? So you're right. I mean, um, to our international, to our non-Israeli audience, there's, uh, there's always this notion of... Um, you finish high school and then you go to college and you choose a career. But for us in Israel, there's the military service, which is three years in between um, that sort of uh, put life on pause. And during my military service, I was uh, mainly working uh, in a non-combat unit that was, or serving, I should say, not working. Nobody paid me to be there. <laughs> um, that was developing instructional techniques. And uh, I consider this my first job in the sense that I really got a lot out of it the foundations of what I do today in terms of uh, thinking about how to convey a message, 
how to get people to actually listen and be attentive and learn something, uh, how to get people's cooperation for um, an information exchange that is part of communication, really all came from my military service. So while my military, car- military career was uh, nothing too fancy in uh, military <laughs> terms, uh, I do want to say that I got a lot, of, a lot out of it. Once I finished my military service, my first position, uh, my first real job was as a teacher. I was actually teaching uh, in a high school in Jerusalem. I was teaching computer programming and computerized video editing, so all sorts of uses of computers in, uh, in the school's activities. And, um, you know, I got a lot out of it. I still consider it the most noble job I ever did. And my retirement plan or my post uh, <laughs> play by my post-technology plan is to go back to it because I find it to be the most meaningful um, position possible. And one really interesting thing that I extracted out of my career as a teacher is that uh, one of my students who's uh, 10 years in my junior, I was 22 years old and he was 12, he was a seventh grader, uh, is now my business partner. He's the person I started Playbus with. So uh, I sometimes, you know, sometimes when we argue and, you know, rest assured that uh, that guy has the nerve to argue with his, uh, with his former teacher <laughs> and he thinks he knows better and in most cases is actually correct. So, you know, it sometimes strikes me that, you know, my God, I'm actually looking at the guy that was this, you know, 12 years old seventh grader that I used to teach. Oh, that, and, and, uh, what do you know? That's how it works. It's around. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty incredible. So how do you, you meet Tom? So uh, Tom, was I mean, my, Tom was my student. No, at, uh, after, sorry, I should clarify. After you've, you know, you, 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 know, you were teaching yeah. the student, but when did you connect with him again? So we just, you know, we kept in touch. That's, uh, I guess that's uh, the interesting thing about uh, kids like Tom who, you know, were born in the internet era, that keeping in touch is, um, is a no-brainer, right? I mean, it's like you always have the person's email address. Yeah. They're on your ICQ at the time, but then evolved <laughs> into other messaging platforms and just continue to keep in touch. So we kept in touch and, you know, he uh, came of age and finished high school and uh, served in the military in a, in a much more um, uh, heroic role than I did. <laughs> and uh, don't after don't all that, when he was sort of making his first few steps as a professional, yeah. uh, I was, you know, kind of a mentor to him and we used to meet and talk and eventually it led to us doing stuff together, which is, uh, you know, just a great gift on a personal level. So. Wow. Oh, that, that's, that's a great story. So uh, what was something um, that you... Fail that, or you know, early on that bothered you, and and had you overcome it? Bothered me early in my career. I would say that uh, I think you know I was once asked in a different way. I was asked what sort of advice would I give to my younger self, and when I think about my younger self or about me starting my career, uh, the thing I want to you know tell the the Shaul of uh, the the early nineties. <laughs> Uh, Becky Joseph is to say, don't worry, everybody else is equally clueless. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, the world is way too complicated for us to comprehend and, and everything is so multi-layered and everything. And it's just like, I felt like, uh, you know, it's beyond me. It's like, how will I ever make sense of, how will I ever know what to do, how to do? I, I looked in, in so much awe at all these people who were professional and knew what they were doing. And then I realized that nobody really knows what they're doing. We're all just guessing, we're experimenting where, you know, we follow our gut, we follow a bit of data when we have it and we can trust it. Uh, we try things and then we develop some sort of um, an intuition, if you will, about what do we do best or, you know, where can we bring value and, and we bring that to the max and, and this is it. So, uh, you know, it's just like, I think I'd be much more relieved. I would have been much more relieved not to feel like... Uh, uh, life is so complicated, but more to say, life is so complicated that nobody else gets it as well. So just like, you know, do your thing and you'll be fine. 
Okay. And so, you know, you didn't start a company right away. You weren't an yeah. entrepreneur. You you know, you worked at companies. I know we worked at Oberon, then you went to MTV. You were MTV for two or three or four years. Yeah. And then you, you were advising companies. So what, what made you decide to jump into one? What, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a eureka moment where you're saying, okay, sure. And it could be, it could be crisis. It could just be the way you're, you're you know, a, a lot of people are. They're just, you know, that type of creators. Um, but you weren't a creator early on in your career. So I think, you know, I always had it in me, but it's true. I didn't follow that path and I was um, actually pretty, pretty happy being a corporate executive. I never, you know, thought about, I'm not one of those Mark Zuckerbergs of, at the age of 17 already started their company and never worked for anybody else. You know, it's not one of those cases, but uh, I, I think I always was very independent and I, you know, was never really good in taking dictation from other people. So I always had the urge to do things my way. But it eventually happened when uh, I realized I kind of got into a personal moment, a personal crisis, if you will, of uh, not being very successful with a couple of things I did professionally and asking myself, why is it that, uh, that I'm stuck in my career development? And I think the answer I gave myself was that I wasn't really following my heart. I was really trying to figure out what will look good, look, what will look good on paper. Like I was offered a C-level position somewhere and I said, oh, that sounds fancy. You know, that will, that will sound great in a cocktail party mm-hmm. when I run into someone I haven't met since high school and I can show <laughs> up that I'm doing something that sounds important. But I was really let, letting those things lead me rather than ask myself, what do I really want to do? And um, then I promised myself that my next choice will be about what I really want to do. And I don't really care if it pays or not. I don't really care if it sounds great or not. But I'll just do it and I'll see what, uh, what it leads me to. And I always told myself, at least I'll, I'll fail with, with my own device, right? I'll be like... Uh, I'll be able to say why I failed because for all my previous failures, I felt like I was failing because I was trying to fulfill somebody else's dream. So I said, um, let me follow my own path and my own will. And that led me to, uh, to what I do today. And at the beginning, I didn't know, I didn't have a business model. I didn't really have a sound uh, product idea, but I felt the urge. I was like, let's make, let's make content that's great to consume. Let's help create content that's original, that's different that's provoking, that's interactive. And I didn't really have a great name for it. I didn't, uh, I didn't articulate it very well when I spoke to people because nobody I spoke to thought it was a good idea. Really, had I met you early, like, you know, 10 years ago when the ideas first sparked, you would be pretty dismissive. You would be like, ah, you know, it sounds like, uh, it sounds okay, but I'm not really excited about it. And then one day I just said, you know what? I'm, I'm just doing it. I mean, I'm not even like waiting for other people to um, Jump on board. to encourage me or anything else. I'm just going to do it and then let's see what happens. And, uh, you know, here we are. So, um, so, so, you know, th- that's, that's, you know, that's great. But, you know, so you, you did that and when you reached out to Tom and then you decided to build a prototype and from the prototype, how do you go get your first customer? I, I, that's what I'm going yeah. to try. I want to go a little bit there. Yeah. We're getting a lot of the listeners, and we're growing weekly, so this is a plug. If you're listening, make sure you like us on iTunes. Uh, it definitely helps with the ratings. Um, you know, but how do you get your first customer? So you build a prototype, and again, you have a. You, the good thing is you had a you had a publisher background. You knew the publisher what they wanted, what they needed. But getting that, building the prototype, getting that first customer, and saying, okay, you know, we have something. So if the uh, crisis of uh, starting my own thing and not being supported by anyone wasn't enough, the real crisis <laughs> came when, you know, 18 months into it, we already had a product that was more or less ready for market. 
and no door was open. I mean, I spoke to, as you said, I had background in publishing. I went to uh, my friends that worked in all the big publishers in America and I showed them the product and nobody bought in. They were all like, yeah, it's okay. You know, it doesn't suck. It looks reasonable, but not, you know, nobody felt the urge, the priority. Nobody was really buying into it and I wasn't sure what to do. And Tom and I were uh, quickly running out of money out of the seed money we raised. And we came up with the idea of potentially let the two developers who worked with us go. So we're not going to have the burden of salary. Mm-hmm. And we said, the platform is already functional. So let's just focus on selling it. Let's, let's like buy ourselves a few more months to try and sell it and get customers in. Uh, and then if they buy in, we'll, you know, we'll have some money. We'll hire developers again and continue to develop the platform. And instead, we took a really bold decision. Uh, we decided not to play conservative, but uh, the opposite, to double down. And we hired a designer and a content author, and we said, we're going to invest money in creating stuff with our own platform that's going to look so great, that's going to be so well-written and so well-designed that it's going to help us open doors. And guess what? That failed too. We continue (laughs) to get no's, but then the most miraculous thing happened. Uh, Those examples we were creating in-house just for demo purposes, just as a marketing material to try and open doors with publishers that will eventually license our our, um, platform, uh, became viral. You know, it was the early days of Facebook as a content discovery platform. And we realized that people people saw those examples that we created and shared and really liked them and shared them too. And before you knew, we grew an audience not of business partners, but of end users. So we, when we launched, we had uh, 3,000 end users visiting our website in the first month, 13,000 in the second month, 3 million in the third month, 20 million the months after. So it just became Very. huge by virtue of people adopting it. And then when, when those publishers that didn't return our phone calls saw that that's where the audience is going, they were coming back and say, okay, now let's talk. You guys are obviously onto something. How can we chip in? And, and that's where the, the real business emerged. So, it, so okay, so you, you, know, you were a BDC company by accident, right? And then yeah. from the BDC company, you moved to B2B after the, after the publishers came back and said, you know what? Okay, we see the content. We see they're staying. Now let's figure out how to work. Yeah. Okay, so I, I'm going to get into that in a second. But while you, know, while you did all this, right? So you raised a seed round. The seed round was, you know, I give you credit for doubling down. Was you go big or go home? I mean, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, you got, you got, you got, at some point, you got to, you know, they say you, you got to either shit or get off the pot, right? <laughs> so, which is credit to you, and it worked. So after the first round, how, how hard was it raising a seed round? Uh, so it was really, I mean, the first one was the seed round. It, uh, it was hard because, uh, you know, the terms weren't great and there were all sorts of restrictions and, you know, it doesn't come easy when you have very little to show for. Yeah. Um, but I was really uh, kind of on this mission, on this role of like, I'm following my heart's calling and I'm not letting any boundaries stand in my way and let's see what comes out of it. And if at the end of the day it's going to fail because I mishandled my fundraising or whatnot, yeah. then let it be. Yeah. I'm just like giving all I got and I'm, and I'm all in. All right. um, I think that the... Uh, the second raise, the you know the, the the already sort of seven figures raise. I guess, I guess we raised three million dollars as the as the A round. Um, we came to this round, or we started seeking funds before we had anything. At the exact time I was telling you about, where nobody was using the platform, 
And uh, yet we, uh, we find uh, a lead investor, his name is Daniel Cohen, and he's a um, um, general partner at Viola Ventures, which at the time was called Carmel Ventures. Yeah. And uh, I had lunch with Danny, who's a friend, and I told him about this idea, and I didn't really expect him to buy into it because I figured we're too early for, for VC money. And he said, listen, I love this concept. I wanted to come present to my partners. I want to dig further into it. We had a couple more meetings, and he was really into it, really enthusiastic, and he gave us an offer. Now, that offer wasn't great, but it was a fair offer, and it was the difference between staying alive or, or um, moving out of business. So we obviously bought into it. But by the time we already signed, by the, after we signed the term sheet and did the whole due diligence, before we actually signed the agreement, we already took off like crazy. So we were now a hugely successful company. In fact, we were a profitable company. We started making money and we, uh, you know, we weren't sure whether we should take those $3 million in terms that definitely didn't suit our, our new position. And what made us take this round afterward and not even renegotiate the terms was that we said, you know what, these guys believed in us when we had nothing. And so these guys are for real. These guys are in it because they believe in the vision, they believe in the company, they believe in us, and we gotta give it to them, right? I mean, if we, if we, uh, had, yeah. if we had a disaster in those three months and we would, I don't know, lose our developers or something, um, I don't know if they would have stayed, if they would have actually executed the investment, but we said we would have expected them to, so let's expect, let's hold ourselves to the same standard and stick to that deal. And that was the best decision I ever made because, you know, they really are great partners to us. And uh, that's, you know, I guess another thing that you should learn when you raise money, all you care about is, is the next paycheck. All you care about is how to put some money in the bank so I can continue the company. What you don't realize is you're actually choosing partners for life or for the life of the business. Uh, and it means so much. It makes such a huge difference who your partners are. So yes, you'll take money from whoever offers it if you have no choices. But just to say, it's like uh, you need to put a lot of thought and a lot of effort into choosing the partners. I mean, I give you a lot of credit. I mean, that is, that is you know, a lot of people would say, you know, what? Wait, you know a week ago and now are very yeah. different. Uh, and it's not an easy thing because you could have definitely gotten more money. That's from, what uh, crossed our mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it did. But credit to you and Tom you. that you said, you know what, let's stay with people that believe in us. Yeah. I mean, but you definitely made it up on, on I said, I think, and then you raised two more rounds. Right? You raised a 16 and then you made, raised a massive one of 35. I can't, you know, I can't even follow it, myself, it's, but uh, somehow a lot of money came in. <laughs> so so how, how did how did Disney and Saban get onto you, right? Because those are two really, sure. you know, I mean, Saban is, you know, a, a major success. Disney's Disney. Um, and getting those two behind you definitely put you in a different stratosphere than a lot of the companies in, in general, but in Israel as well. I agree. I think, you know, it's uh, having, as I said, having the right partners on board means everything. It, uh, it means everything, not only because of the um, leverage you have for the reputation and the kind of credibility you get in the market, but really because you want experienced people by your side. You want people who are immersed in the market, uh, who know what's going on, who know how to respond. Uh, and during the life cycle of a company, you're going to go through all sorts of twists and turns that you can't even predict ahead. So you want to make sure that you have uh, that your fellow riders are people who can handle the turbulence. So it's, uh, it means a lot. So each of them is a different story, but essentially um, uh, we were pretty lucky because uh, Saban, um, the sort of home office or the venture arm of uh, Chaim Saban, who's a uh, uh, former Israeli, uh, now um, US-based prominent business person, uh, were starting to invest in Israel in Israeli companies periodically, and were very minded to it, very geared. They just decided to open 
um, an office here and have a dedicated partner for investments in Israel. And we came right at that time, so we fit their story as much mm-hmm. as they fit ours, and it was a perfect match. Uh, Disney started from a strategic discussion about what can we do together um, on the business side, and um, they realized that what we're doing uh, has roots in things that are strategic to Disney as a company for the long run, so they decided that they want to uh, be more involved and kind of be a stakeholder, so they stay closer to what we do. And, you know, the, the art of fundraising, much like the art of selling your company, is uh, is connected, but also to some extent disconnected from the actual operations of the company. It could be that your company is doing very well and you are unable to raise funds. It could be that you're doing not so well, but, you know, you're able to sell it or you're able to raise funds. Uh, so each of these dynamics, you kind of have to develop specific set of expertise in each of these <laughs> trades by themselves, but uh, having a company that's growing and producing good results obviously helps, you know, obviously makes, uh, uh, paves the road to a much easier discussion when it comes to fundraising. Yeah. So, you know, going back now to, you know, after you you hit the B2C world and you were really succeeding, you know, so publishers were coming to you and were you giving the product out for free? Did you create a, you know, subscription model? Did you charge by seat? You know? You know, how did you start monetizing? So we are the classic case of an internet company that just wanted to get out there and have eyeballs, have usage, see traction, and then worry about business model. Uh, and that's what we did. So at the time, we, I'm going back to, um, to our slide deck from four or five years ago before our first raise. And I see what we were, when we were sort of making plans for how this is eventually will make money. And rest assured, it, it's more or less the same monetization avenues that we're actually exploring and deploying today and, and generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue. But um, at the time, it was just very vague. It was like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll advertise or, you know, we'll uh, license the platform to brands. But we didn't really know what it means. And I think that uh, it was important for us to first prove um, traction with users to see that users really like it and engage with it. And we realized that if we're able to solve for that, if we're able to to crack the atom of how to make people engaged and attentive to content, it will open up opportunities and we'll figure out monetization as we go. So uh, we started just by placing uh, remnant advertising uh, from ad networks, you know, like a Google ad or whatever it is on our web pages, uh, be it on our own uh, on the operated website, playbuzz.com, on partners' websites that were embedding content snippets that they created with Playbuzz. And that's how we started. And eventually we matured. We now have a direct sales force in uh, the UK, in Brazil, in Spain, in Israel, in the US, of course, uh, that are selling directly to brands and agencies and creating annual deals. And now it's a whole more, it got a whole lot more sophisticated and more mature. But uh, it really started by uh, our philosophy was always, let's do something that people love. If people love it, eventually they'll pay for it or somebody else will pay uh, for them, uh, in order for them to, you know, we'll figure out the monetization part if we'll do something that's valuable. So you, you're saying, you know, a sales team, right? And so uh, this is something I, I try and also focus on a little bit. Did you, when you hired them, you know, what training did you give them? If, did you give them any training? You know, and, and I'm sure when you started to where you are now, there's a lot more processes in place where you, 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 you train them on the product, you train them on the techniques. Yeah. You know, can you tell us a little bit about that? I think that I looked for salespeople that uh, were challenged with the situation 
of selling something that is non-orthodox, that is not cookie cutter. So if I interviewed someone and I did like, let's say someone who worked for a large TV network and was just selling airtime, I would say these guys are pros at pricing and optimizing and, and you know, stuff that is not necessarily the challenge that I'm, the, the challenges that I'm going to face. I realized that our challenge would be that we're bringing something new, something that the market doesn't know what it is. It doesn't have credibility. It's not proven. It's not the cookie cutter. It's not what they're... It's new. Yeah, it's not what they're usually uh, trained to do. It's not how their superiors are used to judging mm-hmm. them. <clears throat> and I realized that I need people who are good in breaking new grounds, in doing something that's innovative. So I look for people who have done that. Uh, and some of them were more successful than others because it is still hard even when you have the right, uh, the right skill set. Uh, but I think it was very important for me to find people with that mentality. And even today when the business is so much more mature and, and you know, grew so much over the past few years, uh, it's still an uphill battle in the sense that we're doing something that's not the mainstream. We're doing something that is unique, something that is high touch, something that is very expensive. You know, we charge very high rates. So uh, in order to be successful with that, you got to have people who know how to create uh, something special. And that was really the, it wasn't so much trading, it was really bringing people who will help us discover how to solidify this offering and turn it into something that's sellable, that's presentable, that's predictable, that's mature enough. Uh, and that, that's how you hire today. Also, you're looking for people, again, in a lot of, I mean, how many, how many offices do you have around the world? Uh, last time I counted, uh, I guess uh, five, six. Okay, so so in, in, in those areas, are you looking for that same type of mentality, or yeah. you? And you, okay, Got it. you know about hiring in general. When you start something, and we're now in a we're now a growth stage company, and now it's about you know how do we get to double ourselves next year? It's not about how do we create something mm-hmm. from nothing. Um, it was really, I think, in all of our. Um, the majority of the people we hired here were not necessarily trained in their field of operations, at least not to the level that we required. So they were all sort of discovering on the job. There were people that I think had the right mentality that really connected to what we do. That was another key thing. We looked for the people when we started being successful, everybody came knocking. Everybody wanted to hop on the bandwagon <laughs> and you know, kind of felt like uh, yeah. this is a good company to invest my options in. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we felt like we need people who truly relate to what we do. And uh, I really think it's an invaluable asset because the company is successful at times. Uh, at other times, it's not as successful. And you need people who will stick with you. You need people who really believe in, uh, in the mission of what the company is trying to do. And when you bring them on board, you just tell them to um, you know, figure things out and uh, come to consult with you if... Um, they run into obstacles and we figure it out together. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to go. I always felt like if we bring someone who has done the exact same job in three other companies before, in the majority of the cases, they will be fighting yesterday's battle, right? They will be like stuck in the old paradigm yeah. of what they used to you do. do. And uh, it's not to say that I don't value experience. I do. And it's not to say that people who came here had no experience, but I felt that in more cases than, than others, we chose the, the, the route of taking people because they were enthusiastic, because they were willing to learn, because they were creative thinkers. And we figured that they'll, they'll step in and they'll figure stuff out. Uh, and we prioritize them over people who may have more experience on paper. So going with the company culture, I mean, how do you build it, right? So 
early on, it's not that big of a deal, right? You just, you know, it's your soul together, it happens. But when you're in the growth stage where you are now, and you have companies everywhere, you have offices everywhere, you have how many people do you have now? Uh, you should know. You know, too, too many if you <laughs> ask me, too few if you ask my employees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you have over 150, yeah. 200 people. Uh, you're building a really significant sized company. You know, how do you keep the culture going? Right? How do you keep it aloof? How do you keep them as so a unit? And as it's a, a great question family? because it's so it's so paramount to a company's success. This elusive thing called culture, it, it really is everything. It's you know, it's you can't. It's not tangible. You can't really touch it, but it's, it's not. Uh, but it's there. It's everywhere. Yeah, right. Because it, it, the the culture goes towards loyalty, mm-hmm. and a loyal a loyal employee is the. Is the best, right? I mean, it's loyalty, it's creativity, it's uh, the spirit of overcoming obstacles, and and you know, it really it makes a big difference. I think the key is to remember that uh, just like you know, as an adult, I'm trying to preserve some of the spirit of youth. I'm no longer 15 years old, and I'm not. Expe- I'm expected to act like someone who's no longer 15. And even though it's very charming and very sexy to be, you know, a young rebellious adolescent. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but I'm not in that position now. So one of the things you have to acknowledge is that your culture will evolve over time. Not your organization, you're not going to have the same flexibility, the same agility, the same fluidity that you had when you were just a young startup with six people. Uh, but you preserve the essence of it, which goes back to what I said about finding people who really relate to the mission and who are really eager who are coming here for the right reasons. Uh, we very, very rarely uh, bid for people sell for uh, uh, hiring candidate salaries against other companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes we have to because the Israeli market is so saturated with uh, with new companies and there's such high demand for skillful employees that it's always there's always a competition. But usually when we find that we're bidding on salary, we're letting them take a bigger salary somewhere else because we realize that we want the people who come here to come here because this is where they want to work because they feel like it's going to be fun because they just feel it in their bones, something in the vibe, something in what we do, something in the people they've met just tells them that this is the right place for them. And if we have to, so yeah, we do have to pay them and we do have to pay them generously and, and appropriately. But if it comes down to a bidding war and somebody else is offering you know, $1,000 more, and that that is the determining factor for them. Then let them have cake. You know, we just got to, we just got to preserve. I think the key is to bring in people who are really tied to the organization, who really believe, uh, who really feel a part, and uh, and that that helps to create the kind of culture that is resilient to all the changes and all the uh, twists and turns of this uh, crazy virtual roller coaster. Got it. No, that, that's a you know a good point. Um, so with that, right? So you know. What are your numbers today, right? So just to give people perspective of, you know, how you've grown. We got to the part of great, you know, you're really a, a growth stage company now. Yeah. Um, and so I'll share some numbers because it's sure. a private company. Yeah. where You know, we're not always uh, very transparent about it from the for to the outside. We have a very small group of listeners. They, they won't. <laughs> they won't tell anyone. But, sure. <laughs> but uh, so in full confidence, yeah. the uh, the numbers that I am comfortable sharing is that we are servicing more than six sixteen thousand different. Content, content bodies today. So publishers or, um, you know, blogs or whoever it is that is using our tools to create great content. We're working with uh, uh, thousands of uh, leading brands all over the world. Uh, we are generating uh, tens of millions of dollars, growing at a pace of, uh, uh, you know, we quadrupled last year, we doubled this year. 
hoping to preserve uh, a similar growth rate in the obviously it gets harder as the uh, initial uh, initial pile is larger um, over the next few years uh, as you said we are uh, about 150 or something employees uh, so it's um, you know it's it's still a small business in uh, if you compare it to uh, to some giants in our industry <laughs> Uh, and we still have much room, room to grow, but definitely it's no longer, going back to the culture thing, it's no longer just, uh, um, you know, two kids from Jerusalem and a couple of friends that they gathered around them that are doing something out of their basement in full passion and hope that it will make sense someday. It's now a business. It's, uh, it's more professional. There are practices in place. Uh, there are a lot of processes. Uh, you know, we have very clear goals, very clear roadmaps of how we get there. We are measuring ourselves religiously in everything we do. Uh, we take decisions that are sometimes not the easiest emotionally, but make sense business-wise. We're maturing. And really the challenge is how to do that and yet preserve that passion and enthusiasm that made us who we are. What, what was the key hire you know, that you felt that really made that co- your company grow? So, you know, I want to say we had a bunch of them, and uh, I, I hope that no one will be insulted, but the first one that comes to my mind is uh, a very special person by the name of Shachar Oren, who joined us as our sixth employee, and uh, we hired her as a content author, as I said, because we, we needed uh, someone to sort of practice what we preach to demonstrate the capabilities of our platform by creating good content with our platform, so we needed a content person. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough great things about Shachal, but uh, I would say that the most profound thing was that uh, I, I told her, look, I have to be honest with you, uh, we are running out of cash in uh, right now, in four months from now, we're going to be out of money. So I do, we are starting discussions with venture funds and I've done it in the past. I feel really good about our chances, but you need to know you're taking a risk because I don't know if we'll stick around for more than a few months and you could be leaving a perfectly good job for something that's going to finish up in the air in a few months. And she said, no problem. I have no doubt in my mind that we're going to make it. I'm, I'm jumping on board. And I remember, you know, I was shocked. <laughs> and I remember that I was like, you know, going home the same night and I was like, uh, oh boy, I, I better make this stuff work. <laughs> I mean, like people actually trust me to, the, you know, to deliver that. And uh, I think that that's, uh, again, I keep going back to those values of people who believe in the business because essentially I believe that that's, that's what makes the business grow. Did you find scaling hard, right? So, you know, you, you, were, you, you were growing nicely, but there's a point when you're, you're hitting 16,000 content properties. I don't even know. I mean, they must be doing, I would say, millions of pieces of content, right? So you built a product, right? And the, it's a self-service product, right? So the point is that they should be able to do but. They gotta be. You had to run into some issues oh, of like, holy cow, what? <laughs> the, we just can't. We, we're, we're, we're in a crash, right? We can't. We can't. You know, produce enough for the needs of, of our customers. Did you ever have that? We had all sorts of um, uh, scale issues and still having them. I mean, you know, things happen and you need to respond to them all the time. Uh, I got so many stories about how one day we realized that our hosting bills are. <laughs> off the roof because <laughs> there was just so much usage and, you know, it was a blessing, but it was a very expensive blessing. Uh, I can only imagine when you had the 30 million people <laughs> playing, you know, using on the playbuzz.com. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was crazy. We had a lot of uh, realizations that uh, we're playing in the big boys league now and we need to, we need to be big boys and it's not easy to, to become big boys overnight and obviously everybody's uh, very excited when things are taking off and they are successful but uh, 
the level of headache and anxieties are growing in, in a linear um, uh, trajectory as well. So uh, we've had many, uh, many such cases. I would say that I think that uh, what helped us scale the most, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but it was always going back to the roots. It was always about say, hey, let's remember what we came here to do. We came here to do one little thing and do it very well. So before we add all those extra layers, so, you know, let's say a partner comes to you, a partner in the magnitude of, uh, you know, AOL or MTV or BBC and says, hey, you know, I really want you guys to also create this and that or also to support these and that usages. You're immediately inclined to say, of course, whatever you'll say, I'll do anything to protect these business partnerships and I'll work there. But we learned how to push back and say, you know what, guys? Right now, this is what our platform can do. Here's the roadmap of what we think it's going to do in the next two quarters or so. What you're asking is not on the roadmap. Um, You know, happy to resurface and discuss that in a quarter from now. Or here's a little test we can do. uh, Or if you really want it, why don't you guys commit to a certain payment so we can develop it together. But we learn to say no and to go back to what we do best and say, this is what our platform does. And we are 100% committed to that. This will gradually evolve over time, but we shouldn't uh, take our eyes off the ball and kind of be be tempted to try things that are out of our comfort zone. That that is a great point, and that's actually a a really uh, a point that I think a lot of you know entrepreneurs and founders of early stage startups. I'm talking about they don't get that right, and I I fell into that trap right when I had a startup. You know, you're just doing whatever you can to. To, to jump through hoops to make it work so you can get a client and potentially raise funds and get traction. But, you know, it takes a lot of guts in a sense to say, okay, this isn't what we do. We have to focus. And I find and, that, you know, sometimes you have to save those clients for themselves. I mean, you know, the uh, whatever, some um, uh, big shot VP at some big media company will say, oh, no, we got to have uh, this tied, whatever, like your story module. We got to connect it to our... Uh, branded stories mechanism so it generates and they don't really know what they're talking about i mean they may think that this is key to their business but they don't really know they don't know your business better than you so they have some idea and you know they think they're very smart great but maybe if you end up creating it for them then you know they're actually not going to use it or they'll use it for a little bit and figure out it doesn't work the way it's intended so you know, I think that sometimes by telling someone no, and of course you've got to be very diplomatic about how you say no and, and try to keep them on your side, but it's really like staying focused is, is, is good for everyone in the ecosystem. Cool. Um, so we're going to wind down in a few minutes. So a, cu- a couple more questions, right? So what's the end game here? Right. What, what do you want to do? Right. You're really you're. you're that's, probably a big, one, that's a big question of life. We all know <laughs> what the end game of life is, right? I and, mean, uh, you're one of the big three. You're one of the big three content providers now. Um, you know, they're all coming out of Israel. You know, you're pretty much, and you're different than them. Uh, you have, you know, you're working a ton with brands, not doing any of the arbitrage mm-hmm. stuff. So it's a very different game. Yeah. But you know, what do you want? Are you looking to double in size? Are you looking to, you know, in a sense, take over the content? world? I think that right now the content world is in a very pivotal point in its evolution in which, uh, unfortunately, and I know it will sound a bit gloomy, but uh, I think that my reading of uh, today's industry is that uh, people really aren't reading as much and uh, are not paying too much attention to content. They're much more interested in user-generated content. So in, um, in messaging content and kind of 
uh, very immediate UGC, like Instagram stories and stuff like that, and much less in professionally produced content. Uh, I think that uh, this um, got the industry rolling to align with the lowest common denominator. And we see a lot of publishers really sacrificing their mission and their brand and their editorial integrity in favor of just getting a few more clicks or doing whatever they can to get a couple more ad impressions because their business is really struggling. And I think that at uh, this point in the industry's life cycle, what I would love to see Playbuzz um, successful at is that creating a subset of publishers or a subset of all publishers offering that is actually very thoughtful, that is very content-driven, that is really trying to create meaningful interaction, meaningful exchange between a content creator uh, and their audience. And on the business side, I feel that that's what's going to make us rich and famous. If we're able to crack that mm-hmm. and we're doing you know, an okay job, but I feel like there's just a lot more we can do. And uh, I feel like that's, you know, what I'm still, sometimes I'm tempted to say, hey, how can we create more video ads inventory so we can increase monetization and stuff like that. And yes, I do have to pay the bills and I do have to worry about yeah. financial, immediate financial growth. But I kind of feel like for the long run, if I make a few tweaks that will increase my profits by 10%, it's not going to make a huge difference for the long run. For the long run, what's going to make the big difference if we'll be able to really stay loyal to our mission and to create ways in which people interact. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's what I'm banking on. And as you said, it uh, will either go big or go home, but uh, <laughs> at least uh, at least we know we tried. At least we know we, you know, we didn't just surrender to what seemed easy or shiny at the moment, but we actually followed our mission. I hear that. So now we're going to go to a little, wind it down. What did you, what did you want to be when you were 15? Like, do you have something in mind? Yeah, I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I guess I was always a storyteller, but the medium on which people tell and consume stories uh, evolved. You ever think about a career in Disney after this? That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have the right contacts now in Disney, <laughs> too. But, uh, exactly. With, yeah, with I, think, uh, <laughs> I think Disney can do better. Than, uh, you know, that they can hire better than me. Uh, is there anything that you do on a daily basis that you yeah, it keeps you on top of your game? Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I hate to sound like a, a midlife crisis cliche, but I, I work out pretty much daily. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's mainly just, you know, I'm not a bodybuilder. I don't, uh, I don't run marathons. I, I do that because I, I just, it keeps me focused. It keeps me, it keeps some sort of a framework for a day that's otherwise just scattered with so much stuff and so much pressure and, you know, so many activities. And it's like, this, this keeps me organized. Okay. And productivity-wise, what do you suggest for other founders to be productive, right? To, you know... Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll uh, sound like a, like a textbook uh, one-on-one again, but I'll say uh, <laughs> it's all about priorities. It's like uh, I always ask myself, especially when I'm worried and I got so much on my mind and I'm like, you know, I can't fall asleep because I have so many liabilities hanging. I'm asking myself, hey, what are the most crucial things? What is like the one thing, two things that are most crucial? And then I write them down and I decide that from now on, I focus only on them and everything else I neglect. And then, you know, if somebody comes around and say, hey, I need five minutes about something, I want to say, sure, five minutes. But other than that, I'm just like, I'm not trying to capture everything. I'm trying to focus on the few big buckets mm-hmm. and I assume everything else will work itself out. And miraculously, it mostly does. It does. Right. Do you listen to podcasts? Or I do. You do. Which yeah. ones? 
so I mostly, you know, I, I read a lot and I also listen to podcasts a lot and it's That's mostly my next, fiction my, stuff. My next question is reading. So. Reading. So it's mostly fiction. You know, it's like I'm not, I'm not a big, uh, pretty, like everyone I meet in the industry always talks about like, oh, have you read this and that autobiography or stuff? You know, I barely do that. Uh, I don't listen to podcasts about the industry. I did... Um, I did listen recently to a few episodes of uh, How I Built This. Yeah, Guy uh, Raj. Which was cool. Yeah. I, I, I listened to the Chaim Saban one, which I thought was great. Oh, really? I didn't. I, yeah, I should catch uh, this one. You should catch that. Uh, pretty, you know, pretty sure. he's, he's an amazing storyteller. So, you know, I look forward to, to uh, listen to this. But I just say it's mostly, uh, you know, I'm just mostly interested in, in fiction. You know, okay. I love, uh, I love good stories. Got it. And what about books? Uh, same same thing. Yeah. So I just finished uh, I just finished reading uh, a great book in Hebrew. Uh, that's uh, you know uh, I don't even know how to translate it. But uh, <laughs> uh, in Hebrew, but uh, uh, really my next book is going to be exciting because the next book that I'm uh, hopefully going to start tonight is a book that was published with my sister. Wow! My sister is a literature professor, and she uh, just published uh, a study about the. Um, uh, morning of uh, uh, morning of parents of mothers specifically in the Israeli culture in the Israeli literature, which is uh, I think is a very loaded topic, and I uh, I really wow. look forward to reading it. Fantastic! Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank I you. appreciate it. Pleasure. And take care. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.